Welcome back to the Ready, Set, Debt podcast, where we discuss all things affecting the private lending industry. I'm Ulrika Lobo, Director of Sparrow Loans, a private lender in Australia. With America in recession, China on the edge of a deep economic slump, inflation and interest rates rising, let's scrutinize what this could mean for private lending in terms of the three biggest industries that prop up Australian wealth. Firstly, we're not as immune from international movements as we'd like to believe. Coupled with domestic challenges, credit risk is becoming hard to quantify. Most private lenders work in reactive states to bank policies, especially as banks are such large providers of credit and liquidity in the Australian market, and they have a very visible presence. Private lenders usually have to work harder to be seen or considered and mostly generate their deals through the referral network as it's unfeasible to have such huge marketing budgets, street offices or branches in visible spaces. Mostly, borrowers only learn about a private lender from their broker, accountant, financial advisor or lawyer. Even though the banks get a first look into all deals due to their presence and private lenders seem to have to position themselves based on banking appetites, I still think it's important to have a proactive and strategic approach to lending so that we can predict and plan for different outcomes. This will also set private lending up to be more than a second choice, becoming a true alternative to the banking sector. Without further ado, let's go into the three capstones of the Australian economy so that we can better understand the market risk that will affect private debt. Australia's economy is defined by three capstones, resources, financial services and property. Australia exports an enormous 245.8 billion worth of minerals and fuels, over half of all exports by any sector. Our property market is worth 10.2 trillion and underpins most of Australia's wealth and the construction industry here. Finally, financial services as an industry is the largest contributor to national GDP, contributing more than 140 billion and employing nearly half a million people. During and after the global financial crisis, politicians and business people alike developed a false sense of belief that Australia was somehow different from the rest of the world. We strongly believe that our economy is more resilient and future-facing. We had always been the lucky country and luck was again on our side. While there are unique aspects of the Australian economy, these can pose real cyclical risks, especially when our largest and most concentrated industries struggle together. With the financial services industry and property industries so heavily entangled, they weigh heavily on market risk. The reason that Australia made it through the GFC was because an expansionary China was amid an industrialization and urbanization boom, which kept our economy buoyant with its demand for iron ore and coal. So Australia's unusually strong performance during the GFC can be put down to its role as China's commodity supplier. Australia has enjoyed a privileged relationship with China, providing it with raw materials it needed to pursue its aggressive growth policies. There was consistent demand for Australian ore to produce the steel used in its expansive construction industry, and Australian coal burned in the hearts of Chinese factories. The rapid expansion of China's economy led to a prosperous mining boom. Chinese demand for iron ore was also the cause of our 2012 mining boom as it transitioned from light to heavy industry. Their steel industry quadrupled over the decade and demand for Australian iron ore increased from 70 million tonnes in the year 2000 to 685 million tonnes by 2011. Chinese demand has long been the driver of economic booms and busts. Even though America is our largest contributor of fixed direct investment into Australia, cumulatively sitting at over $1 trillion at the moment. Furthermore, our dependence on China for economic prosperity has only deepened. 
China makes up 26.4% of our bilateral trade. More than 75% of our exports to China are commodities and resources. As a result, minerals and resources have become foundational to Australian trade and our relationship with the world. In the past few months, the security of Australia's lucrative commodities and resource sector has been put into question. Coupled with rising oil prices and less competitive Chinese manufacturing, along with the high degree of vacancy and non-yielding properties in China, China is experiencing a slump and it cannot keep investing in its own property and credit bubble. We started to see signs of it teetering dangerously close to the edge when Evergrande hit the news. China is not expected to have the same demand for iron ore, which will affect the international demand for this commodity, driving its price down. Due to the high overheads of mining, this threatens the profitability of the industry. This also places Australia as a nation in a vulnerable position. As the value of our exports decline, so does our GDP. If our exports are less than our imports, we enter a trade deficit. And this will be an impact to us as we may also experience a budget deficit as a result. This could also create the situation where the Australian dollar falls, making imports more expensive. We will see a fall in the quality of life and in the health of the economy at this stage. This will hopefully correct itself as the falling Australian dollar will make exports more competitive, but it will still put us through a cycle of pain. Recently in China, the number of factory jobs dipped to the lowest level in 27 months due to cost-cutting measures, subdued sales and laborers leaving the industry due to horrible working conditions. As the Chinese economy slows and industrial activity declines, it will be a shock if Chinese demand for iron ore stays the same. One thing that may eventually pull us out of this cycle in the medium to long term will be the rise of renewable energy and electric vehicles and Australia's pivot to resources needed for the renewables industry. Electric vehicles require about 200 kilos of rare minerals like lithium, nickel and cobalt. Wind turbines need four times the minerals of a coal-fired power station to produce the same amount of electricity. Australia is well positioned for the needs of a decarbonizing world. This is supported by EU mandates which will ban the sale of petrol and diesel cars. As a bit of background, lithium is required to produce virtually all the batteries used in the budgeting EV and consumer electronics markets. It is also used in energy storage and air mobility, sectors crucial to the evolving global supply chain. Lithium is a rare metal with exceptional growth potential, and we have the world's second largest reserves. Additionally, we supply about 60% of global demand, drawing in revenue now and into the future. Demand for lithium is expected to increase 13-fold in the 20 years leading up to 2040. Rare earth demand is to triple and cobalt is to increase at least six times. Australia's natural resources industry also leans on our gold reserves. Australia has the world's largest with over 17% of global supply. Demand for gold from EV manufacturers will keep rising as consumer appetite grows. This shift is inevitable. Governments across the world are phasing out petrol and diesel cars, which promises an influx of demand from big businesses for Australian mining products. This is shaping up to be a stunning driver of economic growth, but in the future. There is still the ramp up period for the boom in renewable metals. As such, I expect this capstone industry to experience a short to medium term profit crunch. Let's talk about the other two capstones now. The financial services and property industries are the other capstones of the Australian economy. They exist in a feedback loop with each side reinforcing the other to continue expanding. 
Australia's property market is one of the most expensive in the world, driving households into unsustainably high levels of debt and creating an enormous amount of Australia's wealth. But this could easily be a bubble if the credit industry shuts off its capital tap. Recently, the RBA is somewhat responsible for this rapid ascension in property values. From 2011 to 2022, it either lowered or maintained the cash rate, alternating in and out of quantitative easing. This made credit extraordinarily cheap and culminated in the cash rate hitting a historic low of 10 basis points in 2020. As the cash rate determines the cost of funds for the banks, a near zero cash rate meant borrowing costs were also near zero. This increased the money supply circulating in the property market and with banks continuing to leverage at over 90% of property values, this supported the increase in house prices. The rapid rise in values can also be put down to Australians' desire to live in status suburbs, particularly those in and around central business districts, and the belief that property is a safe investment. Properties with a closer proximity to high-performance schools and public transport, those with large floor plans, and those in hot markets are more highly rated by valuers. We only need to look to suburbs such as Bondi, Coogee or Fitzroy to see this in action. But properties in these areas are dramatically overvalued when compared with the cost of construction and properties that share similar characteristics in other parts of the world. People are willing to pay enormous premiums for intangible features, creating a market which may not reflect fair values. Furthermore, these properties do not even need to be fiscally responsible to be wise investments. Negative gearing makes buying properties that generate a loss an investment strategy. It does so by allowing investors to deduct losses made on property assets from their taxable income. This assumes that property values will rise and the capital gain will offset the losses through the holding period. Negative gearing is also an artificial support of property serviceability through its tax benefit. The conviction in the safety of Australian property has fueled both domestic and international demand and supported the growth of the credit industry as well. Many foreign investors looking to invest overseas choose Australia, particularly Chinese investors and multi-billion dollar investment trusts such as Dexis or Charter Hall. Furthermore, the market's regulator, APRA, permitted high debt-to-income ratios and serviceability rates to support the market's upswing, given its importance to the banks and the economy's GDP during the pandemic. We can expect to see the effects of this now. It's interesting to note that the current debt-to-income ratio is 187%, more than 20% higher than the levels experienced in the GFC. We are more leveraged than any time in history. Furthermore, much of our household wealth is stored in property. As of March 2022, that figure stood at 957%. This appears to be rational given the importance of the property market to Australia's GDP and the size of our financial institutions. A large component of these overblown debt figures is the decision of world central banks to keep interest rates low and stimulate higher investment. By maintaining its policy of monetary easing for so long, the RBA inadvertently created a credit bubble that became even larger when APRA reduced their serviceability requirements. The overwhelming majority of property wealth is concentrated in the hands of the big four banks, CBA, ANZ, NAB and Westpac. Together they hold 93.5% of all home loans in Australia. Coupled with their tendency to move as a single unit, their decisions influence every Australian household with a mortgage. The property bubble is being pushed to its limit with the RBA's decision to start monetary tightening. Rising interest rates are the key mechanism used by the RBA to slam the brakes on inflation. 
In a sense, rising rates make loans more expensive to repay, which limits the amount of money households must spend on consumption and investment. Given how much of Australia's wealth is stored in property rather than liquid sources, rising property costs will send the country into a cash flow crunch. Right now, the RBA is set to target a 3% cash rate. This increase will force many Australians to dip into their savings and drastically cut their consumption to make ends meet, cooling down an already pandemic-hit and recession-wary economy. The banks are also wary of this, and CBA has signalled a potential 18% drop in property values in New South Wales and Victoria over the next two years. This is purely speculative, and I do wonder if it's becoming a self-fulfilling prophecy. I'm yet to understand the reason CBA have signaled this, as I believe the banks understand that they will only lose money if they foreclose on too many properties and flood the market with supply. I think this gives them an incentive to restructure, refinance and offer extended hardship provisions to borrowers if people are meeting a decent portion of their repayments. Rising mortgage costs have come at a particularly painful time, correlating with a cost of living crisis induced by high inflation. The world economy has been gripped by some of the steepest inflation seen in decades, caused by an unfortunate mix of supply chain issues, high energy costs, the pandemic and Russia's ongoing invasion of Ukraine. The cost pressures on businesses are keeping wage growth low. This has greatly reduced the real power of people's income and will no doubt exacerbate the financial squeeze many are now feeling. How can we interpret this for private debt? The more the banks predict a fall in property values, the more I'm taking this as a signal that they plan to tighten their lending. If all the banks buy into this and tighten their lending policies with or without hardship extensions, we will see an overflow of borrowers coming into the private sector but being unable to service their loans. Keep in mind that the value of their properties will have shrunk compared to when they first entered into their loan facilities too, and private lenders are usually less leveraged than a major bank due to higher portfolio concentrations of a smaller portfolio. Nevertheless, if we want the property market to maintain itself, holding onto the properties will be one way to stabilize the free fall of property values. For mortgage providers, providing liquidity to the market while gambling on the future value of a property will come down to the strength of the business to make it through a recession. It will also come down to the collective quality of due diligence in the private sector to ensure liquidity is not used to delay the death of a business that would fail in less pressured circumstances. The three capstones of the economy have been the backbone of Australia's growth for the past few decades. We have benefited from an international market hungry for our commodities and resources and a domestic real estate market propped up by our large appetite for credit. Keep an eye out to see how the financial services industry handles the changes and how the government may intervene to guide their hand, as this will determine the future of the property market and private lending. The size, liquidity and lending appetite of the private lending market will determine how many businesses will be supported when the banks say no. The rest will fall into insolvency. This episode has been an introduction to the capstones of the Australian economy. I hope you enjoyed the episode. If you did, please follow us, like us or message us to let us know. My name is Ulrika Lobo and I'll catch you next time.